uh, I think it was about uh, 15 years or so ago, there was a book that came out uh, by a pastor named Tim Keller. Uh, he's a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, and he wrote a book called The Reason for God. And it was born out of pastoral ministry in the middle of New York City for 20 plus years. And out of it, he said, uh, there were these things that he calls uh, defeaters. Defeaters, of, uh, I'll give you his definition. He says, every culture hostile to Christianity holds a set of common sense consensus beliefs that automatically make Christianity seem implausible to people. They're what philosophers call defeater beliefs. A defeater belief is if belief A is true, means that belief B cannot be true. And so it was something that Keller was seeing all the time in his interactions in New York City. People would come to his church, uh, they would stay for a Q&A after, and they would ask questions very pointed at these different places where they were saying, well, if this is true, how can I believe Christianity? And so what he did in his book, Reason for God, is he took those defeater beliefs, and actually the, I think it's the first seven chapters of his book, is he takes them one by one and kind of addresses them. And so as you read through the book, you get things like, uh, can science and faith coexist? Uh, has the Bible been proved to be untrue, like through science, or veracity of the Bible, or uh, there's been so much injustice done by the church through the ages, or how can a good God allow evil and suffering? And so on all of these things, he's kind of answering, kind of dismantling those defeater beliefs that people hold. But then one of them, and, and it's one that they're all vitally relevant. They're all still very much uh, things that we need to wrestle with today. But one of them in his chapter is how can a loving God send people to hell? And that's a big one, right? It's a big one. Even within the church today, you see at different times where people start to hold on to that in the church today. And so what happens is oftentimes when we come pressed up against this idea, uh, loving God, sending people to hell, nested in that is the idea of how can God be loving and at the same time be wrathful, right? The Bible talks about the wrath of God, the holy, righteous anger of God, and how can those things coexist? And so it's a, it's a difficult thing that we need to come face to face with because the Bible says a lot about it. But what often happens is we try to reinterpret it. Uh, sometimes we try to explain it away. Sometimes we just ignore it altogether and pretend like it's not really there and it doesn't exist despite it being in the Bible. And so you can end up with some extremes, uh, some of them like uh, universalism, that all people will be saved. Uh, I don't think you can get to that from the Bible. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. And so we have to leave sections out and reinterpret and kind of rearrange to get to that. Or maybe more common is we just ignore it or we downplay it. And so I, I was thinking about that this week because we're going to be in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 16 might be the most famous verse, at least in our culture, where we live, Bible Belt in the South, VBS, you learn John 3.16 when you're a kid, we kind of know that. Uh, but right there in John 3.16, you have the wrath of God and the love of God coexisting in the same verse. But I was struck by this idea of how we downplay it at different times. I was actually driving through past the church this week, and they have the scrolling sign right? It's got a verse on it and then announcements. You've seen those before. And I drove down the street and it said, uh, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his son, dot, dot, dot. And then it scrolled to the next thing. And it was like Wednesday night Bible study. And then the next thing, and I was like, where's the second part of the verse? And it's not there. It was just that for God so loved the world that he sent his son. That's it. But that's not what the verse says. There's actually a lot more to that. 
There's some background there, even in that verse, the second half of the verse, right, is, is very important that we see God's love and we see God's wrath. We see both of those things there. And then when you zoom out, you go from verse 16 to 17 to 18 to 19 to 20, you start to see that there's a whole lot about sin and wickedness and evil. You get to the end of this chapter where John kind of summarizes all that's been said to this point, And it ends with that if you don't put your faith in Jesus, the wrath of God remains on you. And that's all the context in which John 3.16 lives. And it's important that we look at those ideas and we look at them together. The love of God and the wrath of God. How does that work? Can they go together? Do they coincide? How, how do they interact? And so I want us to think about that today as we work our way through John 3, 16 and then following. And the way that we're going to do that as we work our way through it is first to really wrestle with this idea and the importance of it. The first thing I want us to consider, because it says a lot here about this, is the nature of sin and evil. And then secondly, I want us to consider, well, what do we mean by the wrath of God in light of what we see of what it says here about sin and evil, what do we mean by the wrath of God? And then lastly, can wrath and love coexist? How does that work? How can God be both? And so this is a really important question. And so I just say that to you as we start. Doctrinally, this is very important. To the very center, this is kind of part of right at the, the heart of the bullseye where we talk about the cross and Jesus and atonement and how we're saved. All of these things come together here. And so this is very important that we really take seriously what the Bible says about it. But I'd also say to you just before we start, we're going to look at the, the nature of sin and evil. One other thing that I'm just going to tell you real quickly as we work our way through this. 16 to 21 is where we're going to camp out, spend most of our time. Right after that, the focus turns to John the Baptist. And people are now leaving John the Baptist and going to Jesus. And John the Baptist is going to say, yeah, that's what should happen. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to point to Jesus and continue to tell you to go to him. And I'm not going to cover all that, although we could easily have a great sermon, I think, right there in what John says and the heart of it. But he's pointing to Jesus because of what Jesus saves us from, which is the point of this sermon. And so I'm going to tie those together in that way. But I know I'm kind of skimming over that. And so we're really going to look at 16 to 21 and then verse 36 this morning. So. Let's start with the nature of sin and evil and what it tells us, right? So John 3, 16, wonderful verse, really important, glorious in what God is doing, his love for us, but we need to have the background of the context to fully understand what's being said. And so if you look at verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we say, well, God so loved the world and he gave his son. And yes, that is true and that is wonderful and that is glorious. But if you miss the second half of the verse that whoever believes in him should not perish. Apart from Christ, we are perishing. And the word perish literally means to destroy, it means to abolish. It doesn't just mean die. It doesn't just mean that we're, we're perishing in the sense of we're headed towards death as we get older and we're winding down. It means destruction. It means cosmic destruction. He says Jesus has come because God loves us so much to save us from perishing. But then you keep reading in verse 17. 
In verse 18, verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I'll tell you, I use this all the time for the importance of reading the Bible in context. We love in our culture, verse 17, right? We, we love to take it out of context and make it mean whatever we want to make it mean. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. We'd like to stop right there. Jesus doesn't condemn anybody. He came to save and he's love. And that's right. That's true. It's a wonderful truth that is glorious. And that is true that Jesus does love and he loves so much that he came. But he says he doesn't condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, still telling us that there's something that we need to be saved from. But then if you take it in context, it changes completely what it means when he says he didn't come to condemn us, right? Look at what it says in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned because whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. So Jesus doesn't come to condemn you because you're already condemned. That's the context. It's not that Jesus doesn't condemn. It's that we're already condemned and he comes to save us from that condemnation that we deserve. But then as you keep reading, you get to verse 19. And this is judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And what it's telling us is that apart from new life in Christ, apart from putting our faith in him, that our works are evil. And that's talking about all of us apart from Jesus, every single one of us. And sometimes we don't like the words that the Bible uses or we kind of try to soften the blow a little bit, right? Most people I know, I would say just about everyone I've ever had this conversation with, if I say, are you perfect? I go, well, no, of course not. Are you a sinner? Even if we put it in, in Christian terms. And most people will go, yes, I have definitely done some wrong things. Say, are you evil? Well, I don't know about that. Right? That's kind of where we draw the line. Well, like mass murderers are evil. Rapists are evil. Right? Pedophiles, they're evil. But me, I'm not perfect, but I'm not evil. But the idea of evil in the Bible is taking anything good that God has created and then warping it. Using it in a way that it wasn't intended to be used. And what you do, as soon as you warp something and use it in a way that it wasn't intended to be used, you're settling for something far less than the best. And that's what evil is. It's distorting God's good creation. And so what he tells us here, what it says real clearly here, and this is judgment, light has come into the world. People love the darkness and rather than light because their works were evil. And so we kind of run from the truth because of evil, because we've distorted things. Because of our sinfulness. And then you look at verse 20. It says, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And so not only does it say we're evil, it says that we do wicked things. It even nested in there. The wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. We hide them. We hide in the darkness because we know our works are not good. We know that we hold to wickedness. And so we hide them in our sinfulness. We continue to hide them. And so you start to look at what that context of John three sixteen is and what it tells us about what Jesus has come to save us from. And it tells us that we're evil and that we're wicked. 
that we're condemned in our sin. And you get to the very end of this chapter as John kind of summarizes everything in verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life and whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so be careful with what he says there because that's in perfect keeping biblically with what it says. If you put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. But then the opposite of that is he says, whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so you can read that and go, well, you're saved by your works, right? If you don't obey, then the wrath of God remains on you. But biblically, the idea is you are saved by faith in what Christ does. And then the evidence of a true believer's life is your life starts to change. Your works are evidence of your faith. They don't save you. Faith without works is dead. But when you have a true and believing faith, your life starts to change. The works are evidence. They're not what's saving you. Same thing he's saying here. But apart from faith in Jesus, we continue to hide in the darkness We continue to nurse our wickedness. We continue to turn from God. And the wrath of God remains on us is what he tells us. It's a pretty grim picture. See why we just stop at verse 16. Or the first half of verse 16. It's much more palatable. God so loved the world he sent his son. Let's just hang out right there. But if we don't see the flip side of what it's saying here, this grim picture that we're evil, wicked, deserving of destruction, we miss the fullness of what God is saving us from. So what do we do? It's pretty intense. It's not a great start to a sermon, right? You're wicked and you're evil and you're deserving of destruction and the wrath of God remains on you. All right, have a good week. You're like, whoa, it's pretty intense. And so what we do a lot of the times is we just downplay it. But I want us to really seek to understand what it's telling us about who God is and who we are. So for about 10 years here, I was just thinking about beginning of 2012, we did a sermon series here at Church of the Apostles where we went through the whole overview of the Bible. And in that series, I decided we were going to, it was going to define sin just about every time I said it. And so for 10 years, I've been saying this. If you've been around here at all, you've heard me say this a lot. Sin is rebelling against God and the world that he created. And I say sin is rebelling against God, or sometimes I say sin is ignoring God, right? Kind of willful ignorance, like I'm just going to pretend like that's not true and keep doing my thing. But both are ignoring God and the world he created. I'm I'm telling God I know better than you. Uh, If you notice each week in our bulletin, uh, we have a a devotional guide in there, and along with it has New City Catechism, question and answers. Great big ideas, and it asks a question, and then it has the answer. And it's just to help you wrestle with great big truths that they've put in, in really succinct terms, and they do a really good job in that. That's why we use it. But actually, the question last week goes right to the heart of this, of sin and ignoring God. And question seven says, what does the law of God require Right. So God, the creator of the universe that holds all things together, then tells us how his universe works, how we were made to be. And so the answer is, what does the law of God require? Personal, perfect and perpetual obedience that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done and what God commands should always be done. Why do we say it that way? Because God is the creator of all things, knows exactly how his creation works. 
And because he loves you, he tells you this is how it works. And if you go against what he says of how it works and the way he designed it to be, there will be disintegration. There will be problems. There will be issues. And so God gives us his law because he loves us. Because he wants our best. This is the way I designed it. This is the way it works. This is how I want you to live. And so we say this, and this is so important for us to grasp, is that sin is against God. We are ignoring or rebelling against God in the world he created. And so all sin is a direct affront to God. You don't know what I need. I know better than you. And that's what we say every time that we sin. And then we embrace evil. That is, we take what the, God's good design and we warp it and change it for our uses and the way we think will be best. And what that does is it brings disintegration. And it's important for us to put it in those terms and understand it because what happens in our culture today is we reframe it to be what we want it to be. So instead of defining sin based on what God says, as a world, we say, well, if we agree on something, it's okay. We have this relativism that's baked into everything we do. It's one of the defeaters today in our culture. If we get together and we decide to do whatever it is that we want to do, and we're all like, that's okay with it, and you don't care, and I don't care, then it's fine. And the Bible says, no, God decides. God has information about the way he created the world that you don't fully see. In your sinfulness, in your rebellion, you rebel against what he's told us. And we do that over and over. And it's important for us to understand. I mean, that's really what it's talking about here in verse 19 and 20. Light came into the world, but people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In our sinfulness, we think we know better. Yeah, God, you say this, but I feel this way. So I'm going to go with how I feel over what you tell me. That's what sin is. It's what rebellion is. It's what wickedness is. And then the results of that are evil because we take what God tells us that is good and how things work and we distort them. And so the Bible tells us over and over, you're not your own, you belong to God. You were created for him, that he knows and loves you and he knows what is best for you. But we choose sin, we choose rebellion. Our sin is ultimately against God embracing evil, going against the very fabric of how you were made. Now, when we do that, which we all do, we all have, we all do repeatedly, we all go, yeah, I kind of know that's true, but I'm going to go ahead and go with how I feel on this. When we do that, it's catastrophic in the problems. It distorts and ruins our relationship first and foremost with God that we were created for, but also our relationships with one another. Because we're taking God's good creation and using it in ways that it was never intended to be used. And so think about that. What happens when you use something in a way it wasn't intended to be used? I've used this example before. It's been, I think, years since I said this. But I used to, uh, I don't know about you, I'm disorganized in a lot of ways around my house. None more so than with tools, right? I think I have about five hammers and I can never find one. Right? And so I'll be working on something around the house. I'm like, where's the hammer? I can't find it. And so one day I was, I was hanging pictures, I think, and I couldn't find the hammer, but I had my tape measure. So I'm measuring to hang the picture, right? And I'm like, I'll just use the side of the tape measure because I can't find the hammer. 
And so I hammer the first one in. It worked okay, kind of so-so. But then I keep going, and then you hammer in the next nail, but it acts, it hits a stud behind the, the, the sheetrock. So it's really hard. And I'm like, ah, you know, like hitting. Cracks the case of my tape measure, slides through and cuts my hand. Right? Well, of course, I'm taking something for its intended use and using it in the way it wasn't intended to be used. Right? I needed a hammer to do that. And yet I was using something that it wasn't intended. We do the same thing all the time. We take good gifts that God has given us, that he has created, that are part of his good creation, and we distort them. And we distort them in ways that they were never intended to be used. One of the most obvious in our culture today is sex. We use it as a commodity to sell things. We sell it to our children that this is the way in which you get attention is through sexual conduct and the way you dress and the way you look. And that's what will make you who you are as a person, because that's what we see at every turn. We use it for pleasure apart from commitment. We use it in all these different ways and we come up with unwanted pregnancy and disease and falling apart relationships when God designed sex to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in a committed monogamous relationship for life. And if we would just trust him, so many of those issues would go away. But we don't. And we embrace evil. And in our society, we call evil good despite the spiraling things that come out of it. And we do it over and over again. And as we do, it distorts everything around us. And God's word tells us, and we know this, he tells us clearly what is true about the way we were designed. We know it in our conscience, the Bible tells us. But then we get to a place where we've embraced evil and we get to like verse 19, the people love the darkness rather than the light. Everyone who does wicked things hate the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. And so we hold fast to our sin. We hold fast to evil. We hold fast to the distortion. And what the Bible says is because we do, we stand condemned before a holy, righteous, perfect God. And we are without excuse. Jesus didn't come to condemn us because we're condemned already. Now, how does that go with the wrath of God? Verse 36 says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And I know that's a lot of hard language that we don't often like to talk that way. Or to hear that, but please hear this. You cannot have a holy, righteous God who is not angry at sin. He would cease to be God. And I think we know that innately. For God to be holy, he must be angry at all things that are destructive. It is part of his very character. His wrath is a fixed thing against all things that are destructive. And it has to be, or he ceases to be God. And I think you know this. If you really stop and think about it, you know this to be true. For years, for about 10 years, got to work with the guys at Jericho House. It's a drug and alcohol treatment center up the road. 
And for years, you would see guys come into a program where they had kind of hit bottom. Whether alcohol or drugs, meth or heroin or whatever it was. And they had gotten to this place in their life where it couldn't get any lower. And oftentimes through their family begging and pleading and pushing them into this program, they would finally come to this place. And you would hear over and over as they came in, my family is so mad at me. They hate me. I don't think they can ever forgive me. And I'd have this conversation over and over with guys as they came into that. As they're coming out of the, the fog of their addiction and they have these feelings of regret and shame and guilt that are not of God. And so your family doesn't hate you. They hate this addiction because of what it's doing to you. It's precisely because they love you that they're angry. They love you so much they don't want to see you in this. And that's what the wrath of God is, is this fixed thing that is angry at sin. It is angry at the things that are destructive. The things that distort God's glorious and good creation, the things that you are created for. And so God's wrath is this fixed thing of his perfect character. And when you say, I'm going to hold on to my sin and I'm going to remain in the dark and I'm going to continue to make these choices for myself and I don't need you, God, and I want my thing and my stuff, the wrath of God remains on you. See, God has built that into his creation. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but actually in Romans 8, it tells us that. In Romans 8 and in verse 20 It says that God has subjected the creation to futility in hope. He allows you to feel at different times his wrath coming on you as you're grasping your sin in hopes that you would let it go. That it would free you. That as you continue the downward spiral of holding to your sin and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. He subjected the creation to futility in hope. And so the wrath of God is fixed against our sin. But it still brings us to the question, how can God be angry? This fixed thing and we're all sinful and we're all in it and we do it and we hold to those things and this anger. But then it tells us he loves us and he loves us so much. How can those things go together? And that is the backdrop that makes John three sixteen so beautiful and so wonderful. And if you don't see all of it, you miss the beauty. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He gave his son. You know what that means? The Bible says that Jesus came to do for you what you could never do for yourself. To bring you back into the fullness of the love that you were created for. But you have a problem. And I have a problem that we can't deal with. And that is our sin. And we're holding on to it. And we're condemned. And God's wrath rests on us. But God gives Jesus to come and do for you what you could never ever do for yourself. And so Paul says it so perfectly. If you if you take what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 521 and you put it together with John 3 16. You know what that verse says? 
for our sake, he, the father, sent his son, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so how does wrath and love coexist perfectly? And the answer is Jesus comes and he goes to the cross. Because on the cross, he takes your sin and he takes mine and all those that would put their faith on him. And he says, I will take it and I will bear it for you. And God will pull out, pour out his holy, righteous anger to the fullness on Jesus. And he will end it and bring it to nothing. I love you this much. So that God can still be God. That he is just and he is so angry at sin and he hates all that is destructive and evil and we can never do anything to fix it. And so our only hope is that Jesus would come and do it for us. And if we don't see the wrath of God, we don't see the fullness of the love of God. They are not opposed. They go perfectly together and they are both born of God's love. So as I end here, This is the very heart of the gospel. And I tell you, if you've come to the place to understand your own sin, your own wickedness, your own evil, your own deserving of condemnation, your own deserving of wrath, and you look to Jesus, you understand fully what he's done for you. Why would he do that for me? Because God so loved you that he sent his son. To do what you never could do for you. But if you sit here today and you go, I don't know about that. And you're clinging to your sin. You're hiding in the darkness. You're saying, I want to still make these choices myself. Please hear this. God loves you deeply. But his wrath remains on you apart from Jesus. And the only way that that happens, the only way that that change happens is to lay down your pride. It's not me. I can never do this. I desperately need God to do for me what I can't do for myself. You transfer your trust to Jesus and he takes all of it and it is gone. And you become the righteousness of God in him. The glorious good news of the gospel. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that your wrath is born out of your love. We thank you that your love is so full that you have made a way to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you for your grace that it overflows, that you give us not what we deserve, but far better. You have done for us what we could never do. Help us to see that afresh today. Help us to cling to the truth of what you've done for us. In Jesus, and it is his name that we pray. Amen.